So I started writing stories about GoBots instead. And Mrs. Mangles' room was just the bane of my life. A horrible bee-in-a-jar type noise. She was just completely expunged from the girl verse. Full nuttles of the U-chips. The Mr. Wilmot Brown of chocolate bars. A show in which myself and the guests talk about six things that they remember that no one else ever seems to. Right in front of me right now, mainly because I've just been illustrating the article about it, is the DVD release of Girls on Top, the 1985-1986 ITV sitcom starring Dawn French, Jennifer Saunders, Tracy Ullman and Ruby Wax, which people tend to leave out of the history of alternative comedy, possibly because it featured those pesky women. Before this DVD came out, time was when the, I think it was around one and a half episodes of Girls on Top that were released on VHS used to go for stupid money on second-hand sites. But as writer Paul Abbott told us, there's a video featuring a very different Fab Four, which really doesn't go for that much money at all. A video that I had in the 80s, which I think a lot of people had in the 80s, and what it represents to me is, I think we're in a Beatles golden age at the moment, and it started with the anthology coming out. But until that came out, to get any definitive sort of collection of like interviews of the Beatles, a story that wasn't just a book, and I mean, yeah, loads of books and things, there was this film called The Complete Beatles with the hilarious spelling of complete as C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T. It was basically the best thing you could have as a Beatles fan. And I was an eight-year-old Beatles fan when when I got this, I reckon. But it's also one of the most bleak documentaries (laughs) I've ever seen in my life. It opens with black and white footage of Liverpool, sort of post-war, making it look like... I mean, it was no picnic in Liverpool then, but it really, really says, this is the most boring, depressing, useless (laughs) place on earth. And who could imagine? And it's all done by... It's narrated by Malcolm McDowell, of all people. It meant nothing to me when I was eight. But I was obsessed with this video. Well, I'm not sure what his Beatles connection is either. I've been trying to figure it out and I can't think of one. Well, I think they just wanted someone who had a voice that could lend enough gravitas to this miserable tale of massive success. (laughs) Well, I remember that this used to be everywhere at one point. I mean, just to underline that, apparently, ahead of anthology coming out, Apple bought the rights to it to withdraw it from circulation because having been the definitive Beatles documentary for a long time... It no longer was in their eyes. So like with the Beatles cartoons, like with all the Hamburg and Star Club albums, they just took it out of circulation yeah, so completely. So it just vanishes yeah. off, off the map of stuff. So if, if you were a young Beatles fan in 1992, 95, and you, before the anthology came out, there was this huge gap where you, you know, you probably would have come across this second hand if you were looking for it. But yeah, they just clawed all the material. But it, there was so much on the complete Beatles. It was amazing, like... Most of it was black and white, but then there was colour footage from the, the Budokan shows, which seemed to me like the most amazing thing yes, ever. Yes, yeah. Doing uh, If I Needed Someone and uh, an uh, electric arrangement of Yesterday and things like that. Is that where they do that? I don't think it's actually in the complete Beatles. I think it's in Anthology, but where they try to do Paperback Writer live, and they're actually going to say, Paperback, Paperback Writer, Writer. Yeah, yeah, I mean, no wonder they gave up touring. It's yeah. We're on a on a loser technologically speaking, really. But I'm so fascinated by it. I still think they should release all the live shows that they've got the full. Mm. Whether they've got the rights to them, I don't know. Well, but, that's the yeah. thing with this. I noticed that you know, obviously, it's been out of circulation for twenty years or something now. But it still only fetches a couple of quid on Amazon. Yeah. Any VHS edition of it, which shows that it must have sold in ridiculous amounts because it's not just you know, it's not 
Orange Juice Dada with the juice, you know, which you have to pay enough money for anyway. It's the Beatles. It's a rare Beatles thing. It's something that fans once loved that's no longer available. Yet it's so tenpenny that they're not spending stupid amounts on it. Options. Yeah, and it's been so superseded by the anthology. But I think it does something very different to the anthology. And it, it's got a load of interviews with, you know, these are sort of associated Beatles people. So you've got Tony Sheridan and uh, like Alan Williams and Bob Wooler and all that, all that lot on there. They don't turn up talking on the anthology. No. So it's really nice to hear them on this, even if everywhere they're filmed looks like some depressing <laughs> church hall. <laughs> but everything about it, it's, 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 it's brilliant. And it made me a true Beatles obsessive when I was a kid because it was the first big visual record before I saw Hard Day's Night and Help and all that. But it is really depressing. And there's, there's sections where the story changes. Like the Beatles for sale section is like, this was showing a wearier Beatles, an unhappier Beatles, and the sound of like wind glowing, <laughs> blowing up in the background. <laughs> Isn't there a bit where it's got Tomorrow Never Knows and it just sort of like crash zooms in and out on the cover of Revolver? Like, you know, yes, it like does, homemade yes. five pence psychedelia. <laughs> like, we can't afford any graphics. Let's just wave the album around <laughs> a bit. Yeah, it, it has. It's, it's, it's an incredible. But it's great we're very lucky as Beatles fans now to have all the stuff albeit all officially sanctioned but that was brilliant and as you say they bought the rights to it it went off sale it dropped totally off the map well that's I mean that is quite an important thing that people forget about now when this stuff was limited when it was rationed you were really grateful for things like this you took what you could get I mean the example I always use is people sneer at Doctor Who and Celebration now which is the first proper book about history of Doctor Who and you know it was a coffee table book it was written I don't like to call Peter Haining a hack but he was somebody who turned his hand to a lot of coffee table books he did them very well but he wasn't the Doctor Who expert by any means but he did this one book that had interviews with everyone that was still around a guide to every story ever made and at the time I remember thinking that was the best Christmas present I'd ever had I read it from cover to cover several times over that Christmas I was obsessed with it, and yet people sneer at it now, and they just think, you don't understand, it was our Bible at one point, and that's what the complete Beatles was like, I remember watching it, more than I would watch, say, if they brought out Let It Be tomorrow, and it had a documentary, you know, uh, about Let It Be on it, I would probably watch that once, maybe, I wouldn't sit there watching it again and again, but now we've got everything, apart from Carnival of Light, obviously, but you lose some of your appreciation for stuff, in a sense, I think. Yeah, and the good thing with the complete Beatles as well, it's, it's had little sort of nuggets squirrelled away in it, like some of the Star Club tapes are in there in the background illustrating the early years. So you were hearing that even before you had all the official albums, you'd hear, be in hearing some of this rare stuff anyway. Of course, not every video sold quite as well as the complete Beatles, but even so, there are some VHS releases that are just so obscure that you can't even really find out anything about them online. And when writer Anna Kale appeared on the show, she wanted to talk about a video that was maybe even a bit more obscure than that. Hasn't everybody seen this film? Okay, so this is an obscure... I'm going to describe it as a comedy fantasy romance mashup. It's an Australian film, I think from about 1990, and randomly starred Rosanna Arquette, where she plays a basically a bored housewife, kind of having this kind of fantasy romance with a character played by the ever-wonderful Hugo Weaving. It's a really odd film, and yet I've never met anybody else apart from my brother who's seen uh, Wendy Crack the walnuts. Well, it's really difficult to find out anything about it because the Wikipedia page is literally one line. It says, When You <laughs> Crack the Walnuts, it's a 1990 Australian comedy film directed by Michael Pattinson and starring Rosanna Arquette and Bruce Spence. And immediately leaping out, yeah. me, Michael Pattinson directed Prisoner Cell Block H. 
So, you know, what a strange career that is. Bruce Spence was always, I think he's mainly a voice artist, but he always turned up in things like the Mad Max franchise and Lord of the Rings and so on. I think to people who read the very small credit at the end of genre films, he's probably quite well known. But this doesn't seem like a natural fit for him at all. No, it doesn't. I, I think from memory he played the husband of the bored housewife. As I said, I've only ever seen it once, I think. And I can't remember, my brother and I used to spend um, a lot of time watching films together in the kind of 1990, 91, 92 time. He was living in a very flat in uh, dodgy parts of Leeds. Um, he'd left home by then. I used to go and stay with him on a weekend when I was in my teen years. Um, we were both single, spending Saturday nights, you know, watching videos and having takeaways together. I thought I was really growing up doing that, like, you know, going over to his flat and kind of, you know, staying up all night watching films. And we used to go to his local video shop, which most of the time had limited choice um, <laughs> in the stock. And we, we, yeah, we saw some really crazy things. We also, during that time, saw the Doberman Gang, which I was quite tempted to include here because there again, I can count on one hand the number of people who've seen that as well. So yeah, we'd get a video, we'd get some chocolate, usually star bars, get the video, take it back and, and watch it. And the Wendy Cracks a Walnut was one of the ones we chose because there was nothing else left in the shop, to be honest. <laughs> I think we'd seen everything else and yeah we just went for that one now i had quite a thing for australian films maybe it's linked to the neighbors thing i don't know but i'm a big fan of australian cinema and there are some wonderful australian films from that time and since this is not one of them but it has a special place in my heart because of i guess the context in which i saw it and also because i quite like the idea that no one else has seen it i think um it kind of gives it a little bit of exoticism really well this is not one of them has kind of answered the next point that was going to bring up which is i was going to say it's strange that it's not more well remembered because there was a thing around that time i think on the back of neighbors and home and away oddly because it's not really the cultural leap you should make but there was an attempt to try and make australian cinema into a thing internationally you know because they really pushed films like i mean there's the obvious gag in the simpsons where they see that marquee that says yahoo serious festival and Lisa says, I know those words, but not in that order. I remember big attempts to get behind things like, obviously there was Razorback, the horror film about the mutant pig. I think it was a mutant pig, wasn't it? So long since I've seen it. Dogs in Space, the one with Michael Hutchins. <laughs> which, even with Michael Hutchins, that didn't take up. The Year My Voice Broke and Flirting, which are two great films. Yes, two sort of they're of amazing. Age films. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but they didn't really take Brilliant off. Film. And also, there was The Clinic, which was shown as part of the Channel 4 Red Triangle season, you know, where they showed the contentious films of the Red Triangle in the corner, basically saying, oh, right. you know, ostensibly saying, turn this off if you're easily offended, but basically saying, watch this to people like me. And that was set in a sort of STD clinic and had a very young Mark Little in it. But None of those took off at all. And I can't really understand why, because, you know, there is a sizable following for exotic mm -hmm. cinema. And I would bracket Australian cinema in with, say, you know, French and Spanish cinema, because it, it isn't really part of the mainstream over here or in America. It never has been. You know, there's the occasional thing like Muriel's Wedding gets through. Mm. The kind of early 90s, there was a little bit of a, a, a time when things did kind of take off a little bit. So you had Strictly Ballroom, and then you had Muriel's Wedding came out. There was Priscilla Queen in the Desert as well. So there was a little kind of, it peaked a little bit in kind of really small kind of window of time. And uh, yeah, I, I thought that was fantastic to kind of, you know, that some of that was showcased for a little while, but then it kind of, kind of ebbed away again, really, and kind of keeps coming back occasionally. 
occasionally. But yeah, the, there's some, there are some great Australian films. There are some unusual Australian films too, and uh, I think that's why I, I kind of like it, really. Well, also, there is that thing about, you know, everyone is so fond of the terrible films they've got in the video shop. I mean, I could go on for hours and hours about Nice Girls Don't Explode, which nobody else has ever seen. This could only be American. It's a coming-of-age thing about a girl who accidentally, when she gets aroused, sort of makes things blow up. All kinds of films like, you know, Hollywood Shuffle, everything like that. That's a thing you don't really get now. You know, you have to scroll really far into Netflix to find very odd things, which are normally just about somebody falling in love with a prince when he decides to go to Burger King, though it's not called Burger King for a day on the night he's supposed to be marrying someone else. But when you went to the video shop and you had no other choice, all the good stuff had been taken out mm. and you'd seen all the other rubbish, that was such a an event. And that's something that we've lost completely now. Yeah, that thing of having to find something you had to get something from the video show you couldn't come back empty-handed you absolutely had to get something it really pushed you to kind of um, choose something random no and not have to be so prescriptive about what you want to watch you just sometimes just have to watch anything and actually you, you, you find some real gems sometimes and then sometimes you find wendy cracked a walnut you'd be hard pushed to find wendy cracked a walnut anywhere now really but it really is strange to think that there was a point where VHS seemed obsolete, but DVD seemed like the absolute newest thing that was here to stay. Not least the interactive DVD games that seemed to be a staple Christmas present at one point, but you probably couldn't even give them away in those boxes you get in train stations where people shove books they don't want in anymore now. Even so, myself, Gareth F. Hirons, Vicky Gregorich and Jeff Lewis, all previous guests on the show, decided to have one last try at the Teleaddicts DVD game, and well, this is a bit of what happened. Take a look at the picture. Here are the scripts of Live Birds. The other options are Maureen Lippman and Linda LaPlante, and we know it's Carla Dane, so... I'd like to see Linda LaPlante's Live Birds. This really does take a while to load in. Oh, it's such a cute noise, though. It's much better than dialogue. Oh, oh my God! God! <laughs> it's Jimmy Savile. Dark-haired Jimmy it's Savile. It's Johnson. So we've got oh. which TV journalist interviewed the paedophile Jimmy Savile in 2000? For his own purposes. I'm guessing it was Louis Theroux, because our other options are Martin Bashir, who I think was Michael Jackson, wasn't he? And Michael Moore. Oh, I wish saying. it was Michael Moore. Oh, Michael yeah. Moore's interview of Jimmy so Savile. <laughs> That was a dark chapter in this game when we just started. I'm moving away completely from contentious conspiracy theory surrounded and thoroughly disrespectful subjects. When model maker Jim Sangser appeared on the show, he wanted to talk about a record devoted to one of the most famous and beloved public figures of all time. I have gone back and, and checked out all the things I'm going to talk about today with one exception. And this is it. Uh, <laughs> you do surprise me. So in 1981, you might not remember this, but there was a woman called Diana, and she was quite famous. <laughs> she got famous because she got married to some bloke with big ears. And it just became the cult of Diana Spencer, mm. you know, Lady Di. And I remember a, a holiday, a family holiday. There was, there was me and a mate and my mum and dad, and we went to Weymouth. And we did a lot of driving to stately homes and to castles and to ruins because that's the sort of holiday my mum loved. And we'd always have the radio on. And every single time we went out, we'd hear this song. So we started singing it. And so even if it wasn't on the radio, we'd be singing, Lady, die, 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 said, stick it in your eye. And it just became... Now I mentioned this to my mum the other day. And she still remembers the same song. And she started singing it as well. So it's clearly now hardwired mm. into our brains. But I haven't heard it since. 
So I'm looking forward to hearing this once it finally gets released. <laughs> because I think the little sample that you play will be enough. Yes, more than enough. I mean, yeah. from what I can see... They appear to be wacky Australian radio DJs, the oh, two gentlemen they're... responsible, which makes a lot of sense. <laughs> they're really rare, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds to me like somebody had heard Convoy by Laurie Lingo and the Dipsticks. We don't say who that really was now. That somebody had heard that and thought, I should just copy that, but worse. <laughs> and it's billed on Discogs as alternative comedy. Now, I would dispute that. I mean, it might actually prove the old Bernard Manning maxim about he's alternative comedians, not alternative to being funny, which I would accept <laughs> in this case. But it's, like you say, there were Charles Diana records everywhere. It didn't seem to matter what opinion you had about them. You just no. did the record. I mean, the two that stick in my mind are, I don't know if this actually was a record, but I remember seeing on Granada Reports, a school choir singing a song. Up. The only bit I remember was at the start, they went, There'll be wedding bells ringing, prize singing for Charles and Diana. Oh, no. And imagine doing that, and then years later, people still be bringing out the video, you know, your 18th birthday, so they say, look, you want to the reports. And the other one was, I thought I'd imagine this. I think they were on the Russell Harty show. There was a troupe of Pearly Kings singing a song <laughs> called Charlie Boy and Lady Die. Oh, and it later turned out when I did my book about BBC records and tapes that that performance was so popular... It came out as a single. No. The memory I have of this song, and as I say, I haven't checked it out, but the memory I have of it is the verses all go through different men who are trying to chatter up. Yes. I'm, I'm guessing maybe they might be like people from different countries. Or... Yeah. Now, in retrospect... It's like a bad three of a kind sketch. <laughs> in retrospect, suggesting that Princess Diana might be dedicated to Prince Charles so much that she would turn down anybody else from all around the world <laughs> may not be the most accurate prediction that they could ever have made. But obviously, we've got to view this through the prism of, of mm. her death. And I remember the week before she died, mm. obviously the press are, are attacking her, she's a disgrace, and then suddenly, this is, I swear to God, I was out clubbing, mm. and I was living in London at the time, and uh, I was sharing a house with loads of Doctor Who fans, one of whom is Gareth Roberts. We came home from clubbing, and I decided I was going to watch Breaking Glass. <laughs> I thought, I'm still wide awake, I'm going to watch Breaking Glass with Hazel O'Connor. And then I realised I'm far too drunk and too tired. So mm. I turned it off. The next morning I wake up and I'm going to go into the, the front room to watch UK Gold, which should be showing the Armageddon Factor. <laughs> you know that popular Doctor Who story in which a princess is tortured by a shadowy figure? But then it's not on. Instead, mm. they're showing Planet the Spiders, in which a beloved woman is nearly killed in a car crash. There's a massive car chase all the way through it and it turns out that an evil queen's behind the entire plot. So... Then a caption comes up, due to the death of Princess Diana. And I'm like, <gasps> what? Run upstairs to Gareth Roberts, banging on his door. The whole house wakes up and then we're all listening to the radio and watching the TV all day. And eventually, once we've come to terms with the death of Princess Diana, I go back to my room and I think, oh, I'll carry on watching Breaking Glass. And I press play. And I swear to God, I didn't know that Dodie Fayed was a film producer. And the first caption that comes up is executive producer... <laughs> So that was freaky. That's my <laughs> Diana story. Well, I've got two, actually. One of which is remarkably similar, which is I didn't realise I found out the news. Because, you know, anyone who knows me will know how little tolerance I have for royal news stories. And there have been a lot about them, you know, doing exciting things like going on a boat in the week leading up to it. And I had been out that Saturday night. I had gone back to someone's flat. And while she was in the bathroom... I turned the TV on. There was a news flash about 
something about Diana and Dodie, and I thought, I've had enough of this. I turned over to Paramount Comedy when Lancelot Link's Secret Chimp was on. That was my abiding memory. So what she would have wanted. (laughs) (laughs) But then it gets even better, because, you know, there was hardly anything on TV or radio for days afterwards. And I remember, like, just flicking around the radio dial, seeing if anything was on, because they cancelled things like the Shuttleworths and so on, which is really weird. But I alighted on Radio City, who were obviously, they were playing Imagine and stuff like that. And then the DJ said, and now here's a song that I think reflects how we're all feeling at the moment, R.E.M. with Everybody Hurts. And somehow, you know, it was pre-computerised mm-hmm. play out. Somehow they played Fall On Me, which, <laughs> which is about big business buying and selling the sky. And very up-tempo. <laughs> so again, that's, that's always associated with that for me. Well, she was the princess of our hearts. <laughs> she was indeed the princess of our hearts. And, with the possible exception of Phil Cool, arguably the single biggest style icon of the entire 80s. But even so, Diana would probably not have gone near a certain makeup item that was inexplicably popular in the 80s, as film historian Melanie Williams was only too, well, not exactly happy to tell us about. You sort of start to make your first forays into the, the fraught world of like cosmetics. And, and bear in mind, this is like the sort of early 80s or sort of mid 80s. Um, so you've got you know, whatever's in the, the Avon book, which is limited amber, a lot of pink eyeshadow, which is always an unwise move. But they were promoting that quite heavily at one point. Rimmel, obviously still going strong, well-known brand. They had this range of frosted lipsticks <laughs> called the Shimmer range. And uh, the ones I remember are the pink Shimmer, which was a kind of iridescent, you know, Glenis Barber in Dempsey and Makepeace. Yes, yeah. So kind of frosted tips, you know, very blonde hair, lots of blue mascara, kind of electric blue mascara. And then this kind of very pink lipstick. I think she was probably using Rimmel Pink Shimmer. And then there was Coral Shimmer, which was a kind of, you know, pinky, orangey, reddy colours. Slightly nicer, although not helped by being very kind of, slightly kind of chucked a load of uh, sort of slippery glitter all over your gob. It's, you know, it's not terribly flattering. And if it gets on your teeth, but, you know, forget it. And then perhaps the most hideous of all, Coffee Shimmer, which was a kind of beigey, brown, twinkly, frosty... Imagine someone had dropped a cappuccino on the floor in the middle of winter and then it froze. <laughs> Someone had kind of scraped it up and turned it into a lipstick. That was that was coffee shimmer, which I had. Um, and it made your teeth look awful. It made you look like a corpse. But for some reason, it seemed like a good idea at the time, like a lot of these kind of cosmetic choices is what everybody else is is wearing so you go along with it so yeah at least for some part of the 1980s i had a kind of beige iridescent mouth <laughs> of my own choice and then one day obviously thought what the hell am i doing I need to stop this right now. but then you know the idea of the beige lipstick kind of carries on for for quite a while and it's it's not an easy color to wear beige on your mouth 
just generally a bad idea. Did it actually taste of coffee, though? No, sadly not. It wasn't like those those lip glosses that with the little rollerball on that used to actually taste of apple or cherry. Or um, no, this was entirely disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> benefits from it at all it was just uh it, it was just the color of it um and the idea that you'd have some kind of shimmering brown thing i just can't think off. of anyone in the public eye who wore it i'm trying to think at the moment you know because obviously a lot of smash hits covers and so on are burnt into my mind but i yeah. can't think of any not even kim wilde messed about with it and her, her lips are sometimes ridiculous colors yeah no i think it's if it's like not even Kim Wilde, you know, <laughs> like difficult territory. Yeah, I mean, the pink shimmer obviously had Glynis Barber as a sort of primetime ambassador. She was probably wearing a higher end version of it. And I think it was probably a mistake at the Rimmel factory that they then thought, ah, just, you know, <laughs> get out. Somebody spilled some coffee wine. on the pitch and they went, yeah, yeah, that's the colour I meant. Yeah, that'll do. Avon used to sell this, this kind of, brown twinkly thing in a pot that was supposedly all the makeup that you would need so you just kind of mix it in different ways and then you could use it as powder as eyeshadow as lipstick as blush and actually i mean it seemed like wow it's the a bit like rise and shine wow it's the future but actually it just looked like you rolled in some mud you know <laughs> i think they anticipated the whole bronzer trend of you know putting lots of kind of fake tan on yourself and but yeah this idea that this magical one pot makeup would answer all your your makeup needs and no just yeah just <laughs> very very bad but they used to do some you know very peculiar makeup duo so that they do like electric blue and cerise pink as eyeshadows uh, which you were meant to wear together, uh, which I think is a look that Pat Butcher adopted. It was sort of a bit less. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were at the Vanguard. I don't think she was a great and brand there... spokeswoman, was she? And then there was one that was a bright yellow eyeshadow, and a, what was that teamed with? A bright orange, I think. So you could put kind of yellow on your eyelid and then orange above up to your eyebrow. And this, I don't know what this was meant to do, but I think it was meant to look kind of cool and edgy and modern and vibrant and it's just awful i mean when they can't make the models look nice you know you're onto a loser it's sounding to me those combinations sound like the kind of filters that they apply to michael bay films <laughs> you know the color palettes <laughs> so if they tried that on an 80s british film some of the cast would just disappear <laughs> probably but i mean maybe they should just daub them all in coffee shimmer and you know <laughs> disappeared <laughs> it was the sort of predecessor of green screen you know just cover everybody in that and you can project anything onto it but yeah it would it would kind of make your mouth disappear and then you probably have to add some pink shimmer over the top and um outline it with a lip pencil that was another thing so to have a different color lip pencil around the outside of your mouth and then fill in the middle with coffee shimmer or whatever i think that that kind of that gathered a bit more pace sort of towards the end of the 80s sort of 90s again it's just it's a really bad idea i'm like <laughs> i can't help feeling there's some terrible misogynist plot to you know make us all look absolutely <laughs> dreadful and humiliated i was gonna say that's like styling tips from test car g <laughs> 50 shades of beige Melanie also stuck around for a bit of extra chat, which, if you're not a subscriber, you can find at timworthington.org, 
about opening titles of imported children's TV series. That was the final image it would leave you with, which I suppose is an image of hope. I'd rather they hadn't, like, preempted the apocalypse. Well, that brings me round to my sort of major observation about all of these imported things in retrospect, which was, you mentioned the Mr Rossi theme, which is a really melancholic samba, like you say, which incidentally, Blur, on their very first tours, used to come on stage to how they changed yeah oh, I, I distinctly remember thinking what Mr Rossi they played Da Capo by Love while the audience were coming in and then the Mr Rossi theme what a very different band they became but the thing was that was a really existential melancholy depressing song there's that astonishing bit in it where that bloke starts sort of scat yodeling if you're happiness if you're happiness where where sort of shouting about where is happiness in a kids program and all the eastern european and indeed western european animations Mm -hmm. drama series or whatever had these very downbeat title sequences the counters of that being the japanese ones always ended on a really positive image like battle of the planets you had the fiery phoenix just going off to wallop spectra you had starfleet i mean this is still an image that just burnt into my subconscious every day just started with diax the big red robot assembled like flexing its fists you know as mm-hmm. it's like come and get me alien raiders from just past gemini <laughs> and you know ulysses 31 similarly positive image you know they were all waking up they were going towards the future which i'm saying there's bits of that in thor ragnarok and endgame with yes, thor on the guardian nice. spaceship somebody has seen ulysses 31 but why were the japanese being so positive and not everyone else no, I, I'm thinking about, you know, what they leave you with. I think some of these more like plangent, mysterious, like, oh, that's the end of the world. But at least we're holding hands in space. We didn't actually get around to talking about the brilliantly ridiculous opening titles from He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. But that was more than made up for when comedian Pete Prodge appeared on the show because he had quite a lot of memories of having to get the less well-remembered figures and vehicles in the range. Everybody knows Masters of the Universe, He-Man in his cosmic battles with Skeletor. And then there's that spin-off, She-Ra, Princess of Power, which nobody at school ever admits to watching, but we all did anyway because basically is your your fix of getting more He-Man. And her nemesis was Hordak and the range, range of um, evil soldiers called the Horde. My brother was massively into the He-Man side of things, He-Man and Skeletor. He was buying all those toys. I wanted to get some of the toys, but I think we'd come up with some sort of pact where, like, he'll have He-Man and Skeletor, and I can go, you know, we can play together if I buy the Horde range. So I started buying those. But one for you agreed of, we wouldn't buy She-Ra or anything like that. That's t- that's too girly and that's too soppy type of thing. So I ended up with loads of these bizarre baddies. And at this time, when the franchise was dying off, they're throwing everything they could to make these toys stand out. So you had things like um, Mossman, which had its own scent. Basically, um, a baddie in... It's like an expensive car air freshener. It was like butcher's grass he was covered in, wasn't it? Yeah, like AstroTurf. <laughs> yeah. At Christmas, some of the accessories, I mean, there, there was a slime pit, which you could stick baddies in and um, kind of just drop slime onto them, I think. And then there was some skeleton of a cat, where you, which is designed to hold all your figures when you weren't using them. So my ambition was to finish all of that off, but the figures turned out to be very expensive, all these silly gimmicks. A lot of them were scented. Uh, so it, it didn't really end. You know, I didn't really finish it there. Well, Hordak was the leader of the evil Horde, but I remember, and obviously the name checked in the advert, there was Leech, Grislaw, and Mantena, who appeared to be, his power was, his eyes went out on stalks. Yeah, another little gimmick. Weren't so much around with the original He-Man figures. I think they were just looking at things like Transformers and thinking, oh, 
we've really got to up our game here, lads. And they didn't really succeed. And I remember this gets very little mention now, but they tried to reboot it. It's kind of firstly there was battle damage He-Man and Skeletor, where oh, yeah. I think their chest plates rolled round to reveal you know serious injuries. But then didn't they do a whole new thing? It was like ye olde He-Man or something. It's a very gothically drawn He-Man and Skeletor in the new cartoon series, and the figures were relaunched to match that, and that was the absolute <laughs> end of it then. Yeah, I think it's something in the 90s, uh, you know, I just about growing out of kids' TV, and I saw <laughs> something, some Japanese anime thing literally called He-Man, which was, was based on it. I didn't know where that was going, but, you know, it's, it's like those things when you, you know, you go back and you flip through the channels and you see there's a CGI Fireman Sam and all that. But, you know, I don't want to become one of those people who moans, oh, everything was better in my day. And, yeah, leave them to it, I guess. How many of the Evil Horde did you actually collect then? I think only about five or six. There's one with covered in fur. I can't remember exactly what it was, but um, there's explicit warnings not to get slime on him because it would wreck the figure. <laughs> so you spent all your money on that figure and the slime pit and then thought, oh, hang on. I can't play these <laughs> together. Yeah, it, it was pretty pretty tricky. And, uh, you know, as I'd vowed not to get any of the Shira stuff, I just had an army of baddies, really. And only when my brother would let me just play around with He-Man could I have battles and things like that. Well, you still had it slightly better than. The thing that has always stuck in my mind about Masters of the Universe was, you know, even before the battle action variants and so on, you had your basic He-Man. You also had Prince Adam, who was He-Man in his, you know, Sunday best before he became He-Man. Although yeah, there yeah. wasn't a cringer to go with Battle Cat, I don't think. But you also have Faker, which is He-Man but dyed blue with what different coloured hair from when... In the cartoon, Skeletor tried to make a robot of He-Man, and it has a, a slightly blue tinge, and that's how they rumbled it. But they made a figure of that. Now, some kids out there must have had all three of those. Essentially the same figure. That is a rip-off, that. That is just... Oh, that really is milking a cash cow. I've generally never heard of this incident. I, I thought I was pretty much up to date on the old He-Man stuff, but uh, yeah, there you go. And speaking of fakers, writer Chris Hughes wanted to bring up the ultimate childhood novelty that sort of wasn't. Well, I, again, I have no idea whether this is its official title. I suspect it doesn't have, <laughs> have one. But I can't think of a better way to describe it than the British banknote keyring. So basically, this was a keyring which comprised four small plastic replicas of a £1 note, £5 note, £10 note and a £20 note, which are all sort of bound together at the top left corner. So you could sort of flick them together as a kind of book or you could fan them open ostentatiously like you were the owner of £36. (laughs) (laughs) Or, as any elderly relative would have said, like Rockefeller. (laughs) I was going to say Godge Gardner, but you know... (laughs) I kind of people always kind of I, when I was a kid, whenever someone mentioned Rockefeller, I, d- I didn't know that that was a, that there was a real person. I thought it was just a a, a rocker fella, a fella who who was a rocker and also wealthy. I've no idea where I got the the British banknote keyring from. I have a vague memory. Again, yeah, the memory cheats. I have a vague memory that I got it from the gift shop at Nosley Safari Park. Because I was entirely the sort of place that would be selling something like that. I was trying to think about the kind of the, the sort of ubiquity of the keyring when you're a kid, because essentially you don't have any need for a keyring because you don't have any keys. But you have this compulsive urge to sort of get keyrings and collect keyrings because you know it gives you this kind of vague air of sort of feeling grown up. I've got you know I've got a keyring, 
all I need now is the key. <laughs> makes you feel vaguely grown up, how old you've got half of what you need. Well, key rings were sort of a status symbol. The one that really sticks in my mind was the. Do you remember there were ones where it was a brief fad in the mid 80s for. I mean, they were really bulky, but when you whistled, they beeped. <laughs> so you could locate your keys if they'd gone missing. You know, it immediately ended all Jasper Carrot routines <laughs> about not being able to find your keys. <laughs> Although I've never forgotten the brilliant line about that's where. Lord Lucan is, he just attached himself to some keys and waited. <laughs> but yeah, there obviously there was a good intention behind these, you know, it was probably for harassed parents, you know, trying to get out thinking, oh my god, where are my keys? I oh, know I'll whistle, they'll beep. Yeah. It's just everyone got them and brought them into school, and someone would whistle and the entire classroom would explode with beeping. <laughs> it was around the same time that kind of the, the hourly chime on digital watches. Began. Oh yes, yeah. And again, kind of you would have a kind of sort of 40 second period because everyone's sort of watches were set slightly differently. So <laughs> at hourly time, you'd get about sort of 20 hourly times spread over a 40 second period. And yeah, I, I remember I remember the whistling key ring. I remember the key rings with a little latch, which sort of affixed onto your belt loop. Oh, yes. And there yeah. was a cord, which was like kind of like a curly sort of telephone receiver cable. So you could keep your imaginary keys in your pocket and then just sort of spring them out. <laughs> yeah, kind of like a you know, kind of like a sharpshooter kind of withdrawing withdrawing his pistol. Or you could just swing the keys round and round and round very fast and until somebody said you're going to have someone's eye out. <laughs> That was a perennial fear that you don't hear anymore, was it? <laughs> it's almost like something, you know, roughly the size and shape of a bollard. Somebody would say, you'll have someone's eye out with that. And it wasn't, it's not, not just you will blind somebody. You, you, the impact will be so great that their eye will, will actually come out. It will detach itself from its socket and come out. Well, I remember an elderly teacher saying for that reason when I was in junior school that Jacks and Ollies were forbidden. And I was like, what are they? What are Jacks and Ollies? <laughs> oh, dear. Well, yeah. I mean, kind of, I, I guess we, if you're a teacher and you're an elderly teacher, you will have seen all, all manner of crazies. Crazy oh, yes. I've never forgotten the poor teacher who said that about 1989, for some reason we were looking a bit at the Aeneid in English, and he said, the Furies, not the pop group. <laughs> and there was just a massive silence. <laughs> but I have vague awareness that there may have been an act called the Furies at some yeah. point. Yeah, but you know, when you think about it, it was only like just over 20 years earlier. Yeah. Poor blokes, they'd be forgotten that much. But he must have been using that joke for decades yeah. and not yeah. noticed that it had fallen out of fashion. So the British banknote keyring, I did find one for sale on Etsy, but it was they, they wouldn't ship outside Australia. So I've no idea why. <laughs> why, why did it end up in Australia? Surely they had their own currency. So so why why is this one? Because I, I would you know, quite happily like to have one now, but, but it's, it's in Australia for some reason. Well, it sounds like the sort of thing you get in those dreadful shops that you have now, directly opposite almost every major tube station. Where it's, you know, kind of a London's of London oh. with a, a phone box outside oh, oh. and, you know, a picture of a beef eater singing She Loves You, Yeah, 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 in the window. <laughs> sure, they have that, they'll have those in there amongst all those terrible gifts. But... The thing that I always associate with those shops is 
It was the postcard of Princess Diana's. I was going to say disembodied head, but that's. <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's just it's it's just her head, and the postcard is in that shape. And the same with uh, you know, other members of the royal family. So they have those kind of rotating racks of those. That's what I associate with those with those <laughs> terrible shots. Well, the last time I went in one, I saw one of those racks of you know party basques where it's oh, yes. you know stolen from the Vic and Bob thing and yeah, the yeah. George Michael face and so yeah. on. Where it's yeah. got you know obvious people like Beyonce and so on. And there's a Piers Morgan one. <laughs> Somebody's gonna have a terrible party, aren't they? <laughs> What was the thought process going on there? Do you think? Do they just think he's famous? We will sell a lot of those. He's not. I, I deny he's even famous. <laughs> well, he makes he a lot of people. Well, he makes a lot of people angry. But, yeah. Yeah, it's a bizarre choice. It is a bizarre choice. <laughs> and now something you definitely will not have heard. Myself, Vicky, Jeff and Gareth enjoyed playing the Teleaddicts DVD game so much that we decided to go on to play another DVD game that I had lying around and, as you'll find out, this time it wasn't quite so enjoyable. Hello and welcome to another special extra bit of Looks Unfamiliar where we're still playing DVD games and this time it's Tom Baker's Ultimate Sci-Fi Quiz from, I assume, around 2002. It doesn't actually say on it, but it does say... It's out of this world family fun with a galaxy of clips and more. And it also says it's interactive on the front, which is basically the minimum requirement for a DVD game, I'd say. I'm Tim Worthington, still here with Jeff Lewis, Gareth F. Irons, and Vicky Gregorich. And we're going to have a go at this. Um, I don't actually, I've never played this. I think I was given it as a Christmas present once. And it has Tom Baker on the front in a sort of natty yellow and black non canonical uniform. Anyone know what program that's from? Um, that's from the inside of Tom Baker's head. <laughs> that is a program I do not want to see. That would be too terrifying. Anyway, we're going to have a go at this. It says you can ship specifications, credits, or... Oh, uh, there's many options, aren't they? Okay, we've got the option of playing as one player or two players, so we're going to split into two teams and go for two players. So, let's begin. This is Station 5, calling SS Hawking and SS R. SS Hawking? <laughs> this is an emergency. Please boost your power. We have you on our screens now. Supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy has shown a colossal increase in activity, triggering the opening of transdimensional wormholes in space. You have both fallen into one of these and have been thrown 20,000 light years to the opposite sides of the galaxy. A nuisance, I know. But the dangers were listed in your contract. Page 420, bottom paragraph, left-hand subheading, in brackets. Captain A, you are in command of SS Hawking, a military research vessel carrying back vital data about black hole activity. Captain B, you are in command of SS Ark, a scientific research facility returning zoological species from all over the galaxy for study on Earth. Both ships are carrying data and cargo essential in the war against those cold-blooded Martian separatists. You must get back to me here on Earth. You can do this by answering questions. Each captain will take it in turn to select a category and answer five questions in each. For every correct answer, your vessel will travel 1,000 light years home. If you fail to get it correct, your position will remain the same. 
Your onboard computer, Amy, will be assisting in the mission and notifying you of your progress. But beware. You could come across another wormhole with any question. If you're ahead but get the question wrong, you will cross dimensions and swap places with the captain behind you. If you are losing and get the answer right, you will jump forward into the place of the captain ahead of you. This could happen many times on your journey. Damn nuisances, those wormholes. Sometimes I wish Einstein had been gone. The first captain to get his vessel safely home will be a hero. Good luck. Now, I never thought I think Tom Baker was going on too much, but that has just happened. Why could you only see his bottom teeth? <laughs> Please select your category. Okay, we can choose some literature, robots, aliens and monsters, crazy science, planets and worlds, because they're two different things, obviously, Earth in peril, amazing craft and the early years. What do you reckon, Jack? I'm going to go for amazing craft. Because yes. Jeff likes crochet. <laughs> <laughs> you have selected amazing craft. How amazing are you? Hmm? What is he wearing? Where are your top teeth? <laughs> In the Star Trek universe, as a rule, a ship can't do what with its cloaking device activated? Use warp drive? Use its transporter? Use its communicator? Use its weapons? I'm going to say weapons. Okay. I need to answer weapons any time it's given to us. <laughs> Use its weapons. Although a specially adapted Klingon bird of prey did have the capability in the film Star Trek VI. Bloody Trekkies. <laughs> well, well, we, we are so <laughs> fucked if that level of question oh, comes up. Captain, Captain B. Captain B. What is the registration number of the Starship Enterprise? NX74205, 210B, NCC1701. That one. <laughs> Just to be clear to listeners, NCC. that was literally on the screen on the last question. <laughs> <coughs> At least he's saving us from uh, reading the questions out this time around. Yes, absolutely. Okay, well, that's all we're getting at that because it seems like, much like space goes on forever in the theme from The Boy From Space, this game goes on forever. We all got heartily sick of it very, very quickly and the end just is nowhere near. It's like it keeps pushing us back down the points table as well. So that's it. Thoughts around the table. Tom Baker's sci-fi quiz, was it ultimate? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's never-ending. I think I think Tom Tom Baker's eternal sci-fi quiz would have been a, the better title. Was it out of this world family fun? Um, yes. And were there a galaxy of clips and images? Uh, they were all from Star Trek. Or Montaigne Junior. Well, look out for Tom Baker's ultimate sci-fi quiz in a book recycling box near you soon. And leave it there. <laughs> Well, I hope you enjoyed that collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar. If you did, don't forget you can find the full shows and plenty more besides at timworthington.org. While you're there, if you'd like to help support the show, 
Wanna have a look at my books that are available, all listed and all available in paperback and Kindle. Although this time, I'd really, really like you to have a listen instead to something that's coming up at the end of this show. Anyway, that's it for this time. See you again soon. Blackadder, the Cavalier Years, was made in connection with which charity? So we've got Children in Need, Comic Relief, or RSPB. I think there's a standout. <laughs> This is normally the bit where I try and persuade you all to buy one of my books, but this time it's slightly different. Some of you will be aware that recently Jim and myself lost an old friend of ours, Paul Condon. Now, some of you might know him as a Doctor Who fan, some of you might have known him as a nightclub DJ, some of you might have read one of the books that he wrote about films and TV. Some of you won't have any idea who he was, but given the extensive work he did on BBC Online content, he was probably in some way responsible for something that you watched every week being there in the first place. But most importantly, he was my friend, and me and Paul had actually talked about him coming on Looks Unfamiliar, and he had drawn up a list of choices. You can hear one of them in the background now. It's Fooled by a Smile by Swing Out's sister. But unfortunately, we never got round to it because he was very tied up with having to look after his father in what little spare time he actually had. And that's why I'm asking all of you today, instead of buying one of my books, if you were going to buy one even if you just enjoy Looks Unfamiliar at all, please, 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 just give a couple of pounds of one-timers UK. It would mean a lot to me, it would mean a lot to Jim, and more importantly, it might make a difference to somebody like Paul. So, thank you for listening. Next up, we've got May 26, 1949, a wonderful year, and of course, very nearly 10 to 8. Uh, <laughs> You've used that joke twice already. No, no I'm going to continue it, okay? <laughs> this is the best joke. It's not. Move on. Drop it. It is my bit, you're right, sorry. Uh, it's Jeremy Corbyn. Whereas I've got Pam Greer. Okay. <laughs> Jackie Brown and Foxy Brown, all those uh, uh, films. Right. The idea of them being born on the same day is a little bit... Yeah, that's... But that's... It doesn't quite... They, they, they have... It doesn't quite translate. I'll be honest, they've got very different herbs. Yes, I would say. But who will win in the top trump? Uh, we're going to go with number 11. Number 11! <laughs> As suggested by Tim Worthington. Likelihood of having seen the beast in heat... <laughs> Right, uh, Corbin. It's going to be Corbin. Uh, do you think Corbin had like video nasty? No, I do. I think he's just more likely to have seen it than Pam Greer. She might have been in it. Well, she might have been in it, but you know, no, like, she, she made some really mad exploitation stuff yeah, in the seventies. She did, but I, I seriously doubt that she sat down and watched many of them. Ah, oh, fine, you can have that because I just like the idea of Corbin watching. <laughs> oh, Good. Dear.